I just really think this case is really at the at the inflection point, the hinge in Jim Crow justice. If it had occurred 10 years earlier, maybe you don't find a state Supreme Court that's going to look at this and say, oh, this is a railroaded black man. But in this case, I think you're really seeing the courts turn on the idea of how justice works out for, for black men during Jim Crow, during segregation. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my co-host extraordinaire, Lester Tate. Hey, Lester, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm I'm extraordinaire, you know, so I'm (laughs) very, very happy about that, and uh, very happy uh, to uh, see 2021 in the rearview mirror and to be doing our first uh, See You in Court uh, podcast of 2022. Uh, and I think we're getting uh, this, this, this will be uh, year two for us, won't it? Or year three? I can't remember. I think we started in 2020. That's a good That's question. Right. We'll have yeah. to check, but we're, we're rolling right along. And um, uh, I was telling you before that I, I have a case uh, scheduled for trial starting January 31st. And Fulton County State Court, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that nothing interferes with that, like lack of jurors or something like that. So. Well, up here in uh, up here in uh, uh, rural Bartow County, uh, uh, I noted that the New York Times uh, numbers this morning showed that in the last two weeks we had had a 399 percent increase in COVID. So uh, I'm sure it's more than that uh, downtown. So I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I wouldn't send my subpoenas out just yet. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Keeping fingers in all extremities crossed. And, uh, well, and I'm really glad to have, I'm, I'm really glad to have, I know you're going to do his uh, bio, mm-hmm. but I, I'm really glad to have Chris Joyner here today. Uh, and I just want to say, Chris, that uh, uh, Robin and I have long advocated an Emmy for your wife who uh, did a video with Robin and I when she was president of the state bar, I was past president, and it was called Maker's Mark, the official unofficial drink of the state bar of Georgia. And I, I, I thought she should have won an Emmy or a Pulitzer or something, you know, for that. And so uh, we, we, we keep trying to nominate her and haven't, uh, haven't been successful yet. It's, yeah. dur- it's durable content. That's for that's sure. Right. <laughs> you, can al- you can always bring that out. That's right. Well, it still ages well because that's still what Lester and I drink. So, that's right. um, but we're good friends of of Chris's wife. But let me just introduce our, our listeners to Chris. We're delighted to have Chris Joyner with us today. He's a journalist with the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, and now has authored a book. The title is "The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson," and we are looking forward to diving into this book and a and what I believe is a sordid. Uh, piece of history in Georgia that um, Chris is going to tell us a little bit about. But let me tell you a little bit more about Chris. He is an Atlanta native. 
He has a master's degree in history from the University of Southern Mississippi with an undergrad in history from the University of West Georgia. Chris has worked in newspapers in Georgia, Tennessee, and Mississippi for more than 25 years. Most of that time has been spent as an investigative reporter. He has been a member of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's investigations team since coming to the paper in 2010. Chris lives in DeKalb County, Georgia, with his wife, Kathleen, and his two children. This is his first book, uh, and when not working or writing, Chris coaches youth baseball and drives his daughter to ballet. He is not asked to coach ballet. Good move. Uh, you can read more about Chris at his LinkedIn profile, which is linkedin.com uh, slash n slash slash Chris Joyner dash three nine one two eight five nine. And you can also follow him on Twitter uh, and read his articles in the AJC uh, and AJC.com. So we're excited to have Chris and Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. We're, we're glad you're here. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's just talk first of, about your, your journey to bring us together today to write a book. You write for a living, obviously you've been writing all your life. Um, what, what was the impetus behind this book or, you know, what was the catalyst to say, now I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a book. Well, you know, I'd actually been carrying this project with me since really my first years in newspapers. Uh, my first job in uh, journalism was at the Times Georgian in Carrollton, Georgia, where I was hired as a general assignment reporter uh, after many years in graduate school training to be a, a historian. Uh, I, I'd sort of backed into journalism a little bit uh, and uh and but still thought a lot like a historian uh, uh, as I as I was as I was learning the craft of journalism, and um, it was during that time. This would have been the late '90s that my father uh, had mentioned the death of Buddy Stevens. Now, my father went to uh, West Georgia College uh, when it was a two-year school uh, back in the 1940s, uh, and that's in Carrollton and knew Buddy Stevens uh, as a townie. Um, they ran in sort of uh, adjacent circles, I think. And when Buddy Stevens was killed in 1948, it uh, circulated pretty quickly within the small alumni circle of West Georgia College. So it was something that he remembered. So when I got a job at uh, the newspaper in Carrollton, dad had said, you know, you ought to pull down one of those uh, bound volumes of uh, the old newspapers there and look at that uh, murder case. He says, I don't think they ever figured out who did that. And he didn't, he didn't really remember much more about that. So uh, as a young reporter, I went and grabbed the 1948 volume of the Georgian uh, from the archive and started flipping through it and just became uh, really deeply interested in this story. Um, you know, it was a really salacious murder uh, there was an intense manhunt. It was clearly, you know, a story that, you know, was everyone in that community was talking about. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I, I would end up spending my weekends in the library looking through microfilm of, uh, of the newspaper and also the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta Journal uh, during that period. Uh, 
print, making you know thousands of pages of printouts and putting them carefully in uh, notebooks and organizing them by by subject. And then uh, I, I got another job and I went to another newspaper and I put all that uh, research in a box and I packed it up to my next newspaper and then the newspaper after that and then the newspaper after that until I came back to Atlanta in 2010. But even so, it wasn't until uh, I had listened to the podcast Serial, uh, the first season of it, that I really started thinking deeply about this project again, because what is it about Serial? I mean, this is a, you know, it was a, uh, a murder in, uh, involving people you'd never heard of in a place that you don't live. What was it that made Serial such a, you know, engrossing story? And it was really in the telling of it and how deeply the the narrators, uh, the reporters, and in the case of Serial, would go into the topic and really examine it. And I thought, you know, I've got a story that's like that. Uh, and um, one night I just reached into my uh, into that cardboard box and pulled out one of the notebooks and opened it up and started uh, refamiliarizing myself with the case and uh, you know, five or so short years later, here we are with a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and and in between that, you got married and had two kids, and you and you have a full time job. So, I can imagine it's pretty pretty difficult <laughs> thing to write an entire book. Yeah, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, and know. before we but wait, well, just before we go on, I wanted to say that you put in your acknowledgments that um, you dedicated this book to your father. And you thought you thought um, thanks your father Van B. Joiner Jr., uh, who was proud of his son's work but did not live to see it completed. So I'm sorry about that, but I know how uh, influential and uh, important a parent's um, work can be for a, a son, and how important that was to you. So I thought that was really lovely that you put that in your acknowledgments and you dedicated the book to your to your father. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, a couple of things just really identified with me uh, with it. Uh, one, I, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up in Cedartown, Georgia, which is uh, sort of shares a main street uh, with Carrollton. You know, just up mm -hmm. uh, Highway Twenty Seven, uh, and and also the the murder victim was a Georgia Tech student, which is where I went to college. But one of the enduring things sort of uh, that hit me was I, I had read the book, uh, The Devil in the Grove, which uh, is about Thurgood Marshall defending the Grove Boys. And this seems to be about the same time period and uh, uh, just fascinating uh, uh, sort of sort of uh, uh, reading. And it seems to me and Robin had said sort of in our uh, our pre-exchange that it reminded her a little of To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, I, I think uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird, Macomb is sort of a character in the book. Uh, and it seemed to me that Carrollton is sort of a character uh, as well. So uh, can you tell us a little bit what Carrollton was like uh, in 1948? Sure. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think Carrollton is, a, uh, is a, uh, a character in the book and sort of a stand-in for a lot of communities coming out of World War II. Um, Carrollton at the time was a, a really ambitious community for what it had been up until 
you know, 1945 or so, which was a real sort of outpost and at times a real almost lawless outpost. Uh, and it really saw itself as a, you know, on the precipice of becoming something really special. Um, they had, uh, a lot going for them in that, uh, they had a, they had a, uh, growing college, which was really important after World War II, because the GI Bill saw that college just explode as uh, as soldiers came back and and started their college education at, at West Georgia, uh, and it uh, it also had some major employers and had some uh, some good connections, and there was a, really an opportunity for uh, Carrollton to become the sort of like progressive Southern. Uh, community uh, that was, you know, white collar, uh, professional, had a lot of uh, uh, employment prospects in uh, South Wire, which started there, which makes uh, copper wire and um, a lot of uh, the uh, the things you would expect out of a uh, community that was also the county seat. So there's like a, lot, a, a legal community there. There was a medical community that was there. Uh, and um, so, uh, in 1948, when Buddy Stevens was killed, uh, the community was, was really rocked by the murder in part because of the type of murder that it was. And just to set it up, Buddy Stevens was a, uh, 21 year old Georgia tech student, uh, a veteran who had served in the army in the years immediately after VJ day, uh, he was stationed overseas as a military police officer in the post immediate post-war period. He come back. He was at, uh, uh, Georgia tech. Uh, he was the son of a prominent white family and, um, he was dating a beauty pageant, uh, winner, uh, named Nan Turner, uh, in Carrollton. And the two of them were abducted by a masked man, uh, and, uh, and it would later turn out that this masked man had been conducting serial rapes by abducting women from Lover's Lane areas. Uh, and Buddy, they finally, this guy finally ran into somebody that didn't run away. That was Buddy, who was, you know, back from the army. He didn't, he didn't run and uh, abandon his date and uh, was killed protecting her that kind of random violent crime was jarring to a community like Carrollton uh, because it had so much at stake and and what it anticipated it would become and this really threatened a lot of uh sort of what was underpinning that this idea that it was going to be a progressive community that it was an area that uh because immediately uh they started looking for a black suspect who was uh, attacking white women. Uh, that was the belief anyway. Uh, it, it injected a lot of racial politics, a lot of uh, gender politics into, uh, into, the, uh, into the crime. The whole thing was very, very traumatic for the community. And uh, so, yeah, I do agree with you that, that Carrollton is an important uh, character and in that way, a lot like a lot of other communities around the nation during that period that where they were trying to capitalize on coming out of the war and the depression and, uh, you know, looking towards a bright future 
in a time when nothing really was guaranteed. Tell us a little bit about um, the name. The name of the book is the, the the three death sentences of Clarence Henderson. So, kind of joked about that. That it's kind of give, it's a spoiler in the the title of the the book. We kind of know what happens, but um, tell us how how does Clarence Henderson get involved in this uh, and and really becomes um, the, the, the point we're going to, to me, sounds like we're going to find somebody to pin this on regardless of whether he's really guilty. And it turned out the guy they're going to try to pin it on is Clarence Henderson, largely because he was, he was black. And, and not only that, uh, they had to find someone who, uh, sort of fit a profile they were looking for. So Clarence Henderson was a sharecropper and, uh, a gambler, and uh, he also ran liquor in a dry county. Uh, he was a brawler, not particularly well liked in um, among the black community, even. Uh, and so, when the the white establishment in Carrollton started looking for a suspect, they didn't have anything to work on, really. Um, uh, Buddy Stevens was killed, obviously, and his date, Nan Turner, never saw her attacker. It was uh, it was a new moon night. It was raining. Uh, it was it was dark. The man was masked and shining a flashlight at them the whole time. So she never got a look at it. Um, the only thing they had to go on was Nan eventually would say that uh, she thought he sounded black. Um, she was not even particularly clear on that, but over time would become more clear. Uh, you know, as as the pressure built on her testimony that, you know, we needed as much as we can to identify this person as being black. But with those with that little bit, uh, the manhunt uh, for Buddy Stevens murderer. Uh, they the uh, white police uh, held and questioned, you know, well over a dozen black men. Uh, they eventually indicted a man named Tyler North, who um, they carried over from term to term uh, and, and eventually did not prosecute uh, for that crime. Um, so it was it was about 18 months after the after the murder before they um, arrested Clarence Henderson on the basis of they had, they believed they had found the murder weapon in a pawn shop in Atlanta. And through a series of really sort of complicated transactions, they put they believed they had put the murder weapon in Clarence's hands for sort of just the precise period that he would have needed to have had it uh, to have uh, shot uh, Buddy Stevens. So um, one of the things, too, that that, you know, there's 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 really so much going on in this book. Uh, which is uh, I find you know fascinating. There's the civil rights part of it. There's the sort of justice part of it. Uh, there's uh, uh, the communism uh, uh, part of it. But also, uh, it's sort of at the advent of uh, forensics mm-hmm. uh, as forensic science as used in uh, uh, murder investigation, all kinds of investigations. And now we see. Uh, uh, <clears throat> CSI, you know, on TV, you know, I think 
and we're going to have CSI Ackworth next, you know, there's one in every, you know, every different town. Uh, and you talk a little bit about how they're using this, this thing called a polygraph. And there's, to me, fascinating issue about ballistics. Uh, and I remember uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a, a gun owner and a little bit of a gun guy. And I remember, you know, 1948, a nine millimeter you know, they found a nine millimeter slug uh, killed uh, uh, the victim, but nine millimeters weren't that prevalent, uh, at least in the United States, I think, around that time. And more problematic, uh, the gun that they had was a 38 revolver. <laughs> right. Didn't shoot, a, didn't shoot a nine millimeter. So can you can you talk a little bit about that and about the sort of forensic involvement? And in, in, in I, I think one of the characters, too, in there is... Uh, fancies himself as sort of the the father of forensic science in in georgia right right um that's uh, dr herman jones uh, who the state crime lab is named after now um so yeah in in this case uh, you know in, initially when they retrieved the nine millimeter uh, bullet from uh, buddy stevens in the autopsy uh herman jones uh, made comments to the uh to the media at the time you know, as the state crime lab chief, that, that that they would be looking for an automatic pistol because that seemed logical. Um, it was only later that they discovered that the the scarring on the bullet would not match an automatic. Uh, that they believed that it had to have been uh, shot from uh, from a revolver. Um, and at, at this time, you know, forensics and uh, this sort of ballistic forensics was you know still a no pretty novel in a lot of you know cases it'd been around for a little while but it wasn't it wasn't as sort of entrenched a science as as we consider it now uh and um uh herman jones was sort of on the forefront of that uh and particularly in the south you know he he was a modernizer uh of uh of criminology from the scientific standpoint uh, in, in Georgia and really across the Southeast, uh, they called him the crime doctor. And, you know, the media was just so fascinated with, with, uh, the crime lab and all and everything that, that he had accomplished now. And he was coming off a big success, really high profile success in, uh, the, the, uh, what's known as the uh, murder in Coweta County. If people are familiar with that trial, uh, of, uh, uh, wealthy John man. Lewis, uh, the, 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 the commissioner in Mer of Meriwether County, I think that, uh, Andy Griffith, the only time I ever knew that Andy Griffith played a bad guy was in, in that movie, I think. Right, right, right. Andy Griffith's the bad guy and Johnny Cash was the, you know, the crusading sheriff in that movie. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, but you know, one of the real hero, uh, of that trial was Herman Jones who had used, uh, forensic evidence in, uh, to establish, uh, that a murder had been committed. So, um, I, you know, what role the, um, uh, you know, ballistic evidence plays in, uh, the trials is I think really interesting. Um, because it, in, in the first trial, it's not challenged at all. It's sort of a, you know, I, I describe it as sort of like a wizardry, uh, and as far as it's described to the jury, you know, it's, it is incontrovertible, uh, evidence that uh, this nine millimeter uh, round had been fired from this 38 
special revolver. And, uh, and, and then, so the only question is who was holding it when it was fired. Um, and then by the third trial, we see a much more sophisticated uh, attack on the ballistic evidence from uh, Clarence Henderson's defense. Uh, so I think, I think you're right that, that, that part of it is, I think really a fascinating part of it. And in some ways, you know, you talk about, there's a lot going on in this story. Uh, it's, it's a terrible elevator pitch because there is so much going on in the story, but th- this story really could not unfold the way it did without uh, the, uh, the rise of the civil rights movement during this period, the fear of communism during this period, the rise of uh, sort of a scientific approach to police work during this period, and some real challenges in the courtroom uh, in terms of how uh, African-Americans were uh, were were being handled in the courtrooms as well. So I think all those things have to, you know, conspire to to make this a really interesting story. What's your evaluation of the uh, journalism covering this trial? Because that's changed a lot, too, uh, over the years. You know, I, 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 I think uh, in uh, uh, one uh, one of the AJC, well, it would have been the AJC, maybe the Atlanta Constitution or the Atlanta Journal, but one of those articles I think you quoted is saying it described him as uh, a, a husky Negro or a husky uh, black man or something like that, right. which is not not the kind of stuff you see in the newspaper, you know, today. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, they're very much products of their period. Uh, and, you know, when we look back on this period of journalism, we will no doubt see things in uh, in print that we are, are saying, well, that's not the way we would do it today. But looking back at, 19, you know, 1948, 1949, 1950, um, that you could really see a lot of the community pressures that are playing out and the way that particularly like the Carroll County Georgian and the Times Free Press, the two competing newspapers in Carrollton, were covering, uh, you know, really sort of breathlessly every aspect of this trial. One of the things I really think, uh, one of the things I really think about uh, when I think about the journalism is how fortunate I was to be looking at a period where there were distinct voices in journalism you had the black press, you had the national press, you had the Atlanta press and the Carrollton press all involved in uh, reporting out not only the murder and, and then the eventual arrest of Clarence Henderson, but three separate trials. And there was so much that you could, by triangulating those different perspectives, uh, learn about you know, that period and the story. I was just... Um... I had some places marked about um, Stanley Parkman, who was, I guess, the editor of the the Georgian um, in Carroll. That's in Carrollton, right? That's the Carrollton. That's in Carrollton, yeah. Mm-hmm. Paper and and really the only person in this book that I knew in life. <laughs> okay, I wondered about that. Um, so to me, th- th- there's a lot of. Um, ambiguity with each person, because sometimes you think they're going to be a hero against segregation. Um, other times they say something, you're like, wait a minute, I thought that guy was against segregation. I thought I got, thought that guy was for justice. Um, and Stanley Parkman seemed kind of that ambiguous character. 
um, on page 276, you wrote that he said, um, he's talking about Governor Talmadge. He said, Governor Talmadge knows better than we do that the races will never be mixed in the schools of Georgia. He wrote in an editorial shortly after the November ballot issue went down to defeat. He knows better than we do that Negroes and whites never have and never will dance together in the municipal auditorium of Atlanta or anywhere else in Georgia. So to me, I, I highlighted that because I thought that was shocking. I thought I thought Stanley Parkman was going to come out as a, a hero of justice and desegregation. And then he puts that something like that in an editorial that that surprised me. Sure. And, you know, if I were, you know, writing the screenplay or, or if this were a novel, I would probably make Stanley Parkman less uh, complicated. But, you know, he was yeah. in a complicated position yeah. in a complicated time. Right. Um, he was by many ways of looking at uh, that period, a fairly progressive uh, newspaper publisher for for where he lived and uh, and when he lived. Um, he he was for clean government and he was for, uh, you know, investing in the community and making Carrollton everything that it could be. But at the same time, he's a white man who grew up in on a plantation in the 1920s uh, and also had a tremendous amount to risk as the publisher of a of a startup paper uh, in, in Carrollton. So, you know, he is he is in that sense a you know, a product of his period. Um, I knew him much, much later in life, uh, in, uh, when he was publisher emeritus of the times Georgian and, and had an opportunity to talk to him about, you know, this story, which, you know, the, the death of buddy Stevens and the trials that followed were, you know, the story of his career really. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was never anything that sort of captured the imagination in that same sort of way. Uh, and he, he remembers it, you know, vividly, uh, or he remembered it vividly. He's passed mm -hmm. away now, but, um, uh, I, I, I think to present him without, you know, outside of his time would, would not be, you know, historically accurate. And then the same way it goes for a lot of these people, when we talk about, you know, who are the heroes or who are yeah. the villains of these stories, you know, they all have, you know, everyone is a hero of their own story. And certainly many of them saw themselves as, as heroic in what they were doing. It's only in backwards looking uh, fashion that we can sort of say, well, that's, you were wrong there. You were wrong there, Stanley. <laughs> we will be dancing together. <laughs> he was you dead know, wrong about that. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah, you know, um, in, in uh, you know, I mentioned uh, the devil in the grove earlier, and it kind of and wait, Lester. One second, though. One thing I do want to point out about yeah, sure. that quote is that when Stanley Parkman was saying uh, that we know better than Governor Talmadge, what he was saying is we don't need Governor Talmadge. And his program of massive reaction to civil rights, in his way, it was a progressive statement. Even if he was, even if he was defending segregation, he was trying. And a lot of people in that in that region were were fighting against what they saw as uh, the retrograde nature of Talmudism uh, during that period. Uh, There's still, you know, they they carried with them the prejudices of the time. But I think. At that moment, 1951, you know, Stanley Parkman probably felt like he was being pretty progressive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, and one of the things I was going to say, which which you sort of lead into this because you're talking about uh, how how people viewed civil rights, and uh, in the book that I referred to earlier, the uh, the Devil in the Grove, they they quote one of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, leaders as saying, "Oh, these segregationist congressmen and senators and governors would like nothing better than to paint us pink," meaning to uh, uh, you know. Uh, attached the Communist Party, and, and we're talking about the, the McCarthy era, you know, really uh, as well here. And uh, that seems to have come more into play uh, in your book and in your scenario, maybe than others. And you, you, you address that. Uh, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the real page turning aspects of the research. You know, when I'm when I started looking into uh how the Buddy Stevens investigation proceeded and who they arrested and how they were bringing to trial. I can remember very vividly turning to a colleague of mine and saying, do you know the communists got involved in this? <laughs> because it was just to totally unexpected. But the, the, you know, the deeper research shows that, you know, this is, this was the kind of story that in 1948, 49, 50, the communist party of the United States was really sitting on. Um, these cases where black men were being accused of crimes against, uh, particularly against white women, uh, and railroaded through the Jim Crow justice system in the South was a real, um, I think they were legitimately appalled by it because of their outlook, but they also saw it as a great opportunity to, um, enhance their image among African-Americans in the South if they would come to the defense of these black men in such jeopardy. Uh, and uh, my the book goes into, in particular, the Scottsboro Boys case in near in Alabama, which was really nearby that it had had occurred uh, some years earlier. Uh, but in a similar way, um, the first people to really come to the defense of Clarence Henderson after his first trial. And, and as you know, that first trial uh, uh, was gavel to gavel one day and he was sentenced to the electric chair. Uh, but in, in the appeal process, the first people to come to his defense were communists, communist organizers, and in particular, one, one Homer Chase, who was the, uh, the, head of the Georgia Communist Party and, and sort of head organizer of the communist effort in the state. And um, that's a, that was a real problem for civil rights activists, black civil rights act, activists in, uh, in Atlanta who were also concerned about this. Because as you say, if, you got, if you're pushing for civil rights as a black man on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, and you are standing next to a communist organizer, you are uh, more vulnerable than you would otherwise be uh, because you can be painted as not uh, going after in, an unjust system, but as a tool of the Soviet Union, you know, a, a, a communist dupe. And that was, a, that was something that uh, the NAACP was really, really concerned about during this period. Uh, it was sort of purging communist and socialist elements out of their ranks uh, so that they could, you know, sort of laser focus on the uh, particularly the legal issues uh, surrounding segregation. Well, I learned a lot about that. I had no idea how communism played a role in that. I learned uh, 
quite a bit about it. Um, some of it was shocking to me how they treated alleged communists. Um, I, it, it was mind boggling to me and took away their constitutional rights and wouldn't let them have any kind, sort of freedom of the press or freedom to say anything. Banish people from this county because you're an alleged communist. Uh, and that it, to me, it sounded like fiction, but it really happened, apparently. Oh, it was. I mean, and again, this goes back to this sort of like, you know, the the competing optimism and paranoia of that post-World War II period. You know, this feeling that the the the, the United States was really um, on the precipice of, you know, you know, great things, but there was so much at risk uh, because of the outside influence of uh, the Soviet Union. Or the um, you know the the racial problems that were sort of built into the system, particularly in the South, but also everywhere in the United States. So, I mean, it was a, it was a fragile, and there's sort of a fragile psyche of the nineteen early nineteen fifties. And, and I think uh, I think I'm right about this. I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, when when you're talking about communists, then you know now it's become in vogue to call anybody that has more progressive views than whoever it is. Oh, they're a communist. Uh, and that kind of came through with the McCarthy era where there was sort of a communist behind every tree, according to Joe McCarthy. But the folks that you're talking about here weren't people that were labeled communists by their opponents. They were people who labeled themselves. communists. No, these were, you know, legitimate, you know, as they used to say, card-carrying communists. Uh, they were communist members of the Communist Party of the United States of America, you know, affiliated with the Communist International. Um, and uh, you know, these were and uh and and they were they had a vision for America that was that was distinctly different than than you would find in uh uh in Carrollton or on the streets of Atlanta for a lot of places. Uh but they you know, as part of that vision, they really saw the road to socialist revolution in the United States um, uh, ran through the South and through civil rights. And so they were intensely interested in embedding themselves inside the civil rights movement if they could. Uh, civil rights leaders, uh, particularly African-American civil rights leaders, were interested in, uh, you know, maintaining their uh, their movement for themselves, for their own goals, not for the goals of the Communist Party. So there's a real tension there that's working itself out during this period. And um, yeah, you know how 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 uh, communists were treated during this period was. I mean, some of it's just really uh, amazing. Um, and you know, there's a part in this um, in this book where there is a five day long uh peace bond hearing uh with that is, is essentially it was a restraining order uh hearing it went went on an, a week long with openings and closings and uh and it was uh it was all about whether or not a uh, the communist organizer for the state again a man named Homer Chase should have to put up a peace bond because he was accused of harassing a grocery store clerk in Woodstock uh, and, uh, and that was happening though, at the same time on the national stage, there were, uh, uh, there was, a, there were big trials of, com of the communist leadership, uh, in New York, 
uh, you know, real show trials where they were really dismantling the leadership of the Communist Party for sedition. And so, you know, this is another case of where, you know, these smaller these smaller actions in, in Georgia were being played out in a much uh, grander way else, you know, throughout the nation. Yeah. And another uh, quote of Stanley Parkman in another edit- editorial in the Georgian, um, you quote him as saying, it's it has seemed a little on the ridiculous side all along for us to continue spending time and money in the courts, extending the long arm of freedom to characters like Chase. Our Constitution never intended that liberty should go so far. I, I marked an explanation, explanation mark, exclamation mark with unbelievable uh, in the margin on that. I, that's just mind boggling to me. Yeah, uh, although it it is something that you could very well hear in today's sort of bifurcated uh, political discussions when you hear say someone who is a very conservative uh, voter talk about Black Lives Matter. I mean, um, that sort of, you know, uh, overheated rhetoric is not something that we've grown out of, apparently. So, you know, one of the things, too, that uh, struck me is so the murder was Halloween of 1948. And uh, the first trial was in January of 1950. And he said it was about 18 months <clears throat> after the murder before, uh, uh, before Clarence was charged. Then there's a second trial in October of 1950. And then a third trial uh, in October of 1951. And, you know, now, you know, to have a murder case go to trial that, you know, even pre-COVID, I mean, it's the COVID has slowed everything down, but the speed at which got not one, but three trials uh, was just pretty incredible. So could, and, and, and I don't feel like I'm giving away the, the book when you're talking about a factual thing. It's like, you know, watching Titanic, you know, the, the ship goes down, you know. Oh, yeah. The, no, this is definitely end. how did, how did we get there? Not where did we end up? Right. And so could you just give us a thumbnail sketch of how he got three murder trials in uh, what, like two and a half years? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, and. What's really amazing is that you look at the commentary at the time, they were wondering what was taking so long. Uh, you know, so they were they were really used to in. Uh, now, the judge here was Judge Samuel Boykin, uh, who who wielded incredible authority over the, you know, sort of the civic life of Carroll County. Uh, and his he would have his grand jury uh, presentments were, you know, you know, very, we're, we're covered in, you know, like uh, tremendous detail, you know, it's like going over scripture or something. You'd look at, at what the grand jury would return in terms of like what should happen with the schools or what should happen with the roads or how should the taxes be uh, adjusted. Uh, these were all things that he weighed in on through his grand juries. Uh, and when it came to uh, operating his courtroom, he was an extremely efficient jurist. And he wanted, you know, he did not like continuances. He would, uh, he was reluctant to grant them. Um, even on a case like this, when, uh, as I said, they had, they had had an initial suspect named Tyler North and he was carried from term to term. It was very aggravating uh, uh, for, for Judge Boykin. So, 
a one-day murder trial uh, in his courtroom was not unusual. It was more that was that was the way that it that it happened. If a murder happened uh, in in June, he you know it was it was very common for the October session to have that one-day trial and be done with it. Um, and some of this, of course, has to do with you know how the uh, you know, the law was slanted towards prosecution during that period. You know, there wasn't, uh, you didn't have modern discovery. Uh, and um, a lot of the things that are sort of, that were protecting defendants during that time. And of course you also had, you know, the appeals process was pretty slick too. I, you know? <laughs> I, thought, I thought one of the things that was fascinating about the, I actually pulled and read the, the, the final opinion. And uh, that the Supreme Court Judge uh, uh, Allman, I think, wrote that. And uh, fascinating to me as a uh, criminal defense lawyer that uh, it was insufficiency of the evidence because you almost never uh, hear a, an appellate court say it's insufficiency of the evidence. And they had two other grounds that uh, I think had to do with his confession uh, alleged confession. And, uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but there were technical grounds. If you just wanted to reverse it, you could have thrown it out. Uh, and, and so, uh, it was, it was sort of shocking to say, uh, and there's, there's actually jury charges based on that. Your circumstantial evidence, you have to, uh, exclude every other reasonable possibility, but that's usually a jury question, you know, as well. And so what, what, what did you think was up with the Supreme Court? Were they just wanting to put an end to it at that point? They saw what was going on uh, and, and, and wanted to put an end to it. Uh, and and what, what do you know about that? What can you say about that? I just really think this case is really at the at the inflection point, the hinge in Jim Crow justice. If it had occurred 10 years earlier, Maybe you don't find a supreme a state supreme court that's going to look at this and say, "Oh, this is a railroaded black man." But in this case, I think you're really seeing the courts turn on the idea of how uh, justice works out for for black men in in and in, in, during Jim Crow during segregation. And I think that there's just a more of an openness to look and see whether or not there's equal treatment and. So in some ways, it's not that the Supreme Court found that, but that the trial court was sort of lagging behind the Supreme Court here. I mean, in truth, there is not enough evidence to have convicted Clarence Henderson once, much less three times on this. And it got less believable each time he was he came back for trial. Um, and it was entirely circumstantial. You had to really bend over backwards to both put the gun in his hand and then explain why the gun and the bullet were different calibers. Um, Almost no literally putting a yeah. square peg in a round hole. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, uh, you know, there's there's no motive. Uh, the um, The situation is kind of far-fetched that a um a black man would be able to prowl around in a populated area of Carrollton uh stalking uh women in lovers lanes without being noticed uh is in itself far fetched 
Um, <laughs> and then, you know, so that, that he was, conf- that he was convicted to begin with is sort of like the unbelievable thing. Um, but, but I think you're right. It is something to look at a Supreme court in 1950, uh, batting down, uh, these trial court decisions on the base on the basis of you just this, you did not prove this guy is guilty regardless of what the jury said. Uh, but I do think that shows where we were at this point in history at this point after we're going to see a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, court verdicts uh, and Supreme Court opinions that are going to start coming down that really get at sort of the the basis of uh, the injustice of segregation. Well, I, I, one of the questions I um, have thought about and posed to you is who are the heroes, who are the villains in the in the book? And, you know, is the Supreme Court of Georgia a hero? Because when I read the I read the three opinions One's 1950, 51, and 52. Um, three different justices wrote the opinions, but one justice, Duckworth, dissented in both in two of them. And as you know, we just had the 175th anniversary of the, of the Georgia Supreme Court. Uh, I was honored to speak during that that celebration about Georgia Supreme Court and the state bar. But one of our speakers was Judge Herb Phipps, who I know you know, um, and he was a practicing lawyer back in 1948, 1950. And he talked about the Jim Crow laws and how he was treated uh, as a lawyer in our courts. So when I read the the Henderson v. State opinions, I couldn't believe it. I'd heard a lot about Duckworth being a bad character, but I couldn't believe we had three Georgia Supreme Court opinions overturning the conviction of a black man for the murder of a white, white hero I couldn't believe that. So I, I kind of felt like the Supreme Court of Georgia might be a hero in this book. I think I, I, I could certainly see that. I mean, uh, if um, if nothing else, you you have to sort of picture them as sort of Saul on the road to Tarsus here on this uh, this issue. You know, the scales fall from their eyes, and they can see injustice when it's in front of them. Uh, but, you know, I think I think there are a lot of rather than heroes and villains, there's a lot of villainy and heroics in in this story. And it, I think it is heroic that the Supreme Court could look at something that might not get a second look uh, in an earlier configuration of that court and and see it for what it was and turn it back. Um so, yeah, I think and again, I think that is because that is where we were at that time uh, was um, uh, just right at that inflection point where where courts started to really grapple with the idea that the court systems did not work for people of color. Well, one one issue that would make that so I would think is having the prosecutor be in the brother of the judge. That's that's really incredible, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That was hard. That really, as they say, that really happened, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you take a look at that first trial, just the very first one. Uh, It occurred in one day. Uh, The appointed special prosecutor was the older brother of the sitting judge. Uh, And the courtroom was flanked by armed guards. It 
hardly gives the appearance of justice. Um, and, you know, and, and the defense counsel put on no defense, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the exception of uh, unsworn statement by the, uh, by the defendant, which was just a, you know, just begging for his life. So, um, prosecutors that is the brother of the judge, but also you have an all white jury, all white jury. That's in right. A Jim all -white Crow jury. court. You, 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 you know, you kind of know how this is going to come out and had always come out that way and had always done that. Yeah. So, I, so enter in the second trial, another, what I would call a hero is Dan Duke. True. Um, Dan Duke is, I think, uh, a real, almost forgotten hero. Um, I'd never heard of him, Chris, yeah, but man, yeah. I really enjoyed reading about him. Um, he had, um, you know, he was of the, of the South. He grew up in Palmetto, Georgia. Uh, went, he and I graduated from the same high school, not the same time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a few generations earlier. And, but he had a real crusader streak in him. Um, he, he would represent uh black people and he would defend them vigorously um he would represent uh you know moonshiners and 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 would uh would be just as vigorously uh, uh vigorous a, a counsel for them i mean he he really believed that he was fighting for the little guy you know the the, the person who was oppressed and um uh and he also he just loved to fight. He was just, you know, pugnacious and uh, you know easily irritable. Um, at 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 one point he punched out a uh, someone in a judge's chambers, and that's in that's in the book. I mean, it's hard to even imagine, but uh, that's who he was, and that's who he was his whole life. Um, I didn't it didn't make the book, but I I talked to Roy Barnes about Dan Duke because Dan Duke would later serve as a judge for many, many years in Fulton County. And, uh, I was looking for people who knew him and, and Roy Barnes had, uh, had good memories of Dan Duke, of judge Duke. Uh, and one of them was, uh, uh, and I forget the exact details of it now, but, uh, something that, uh, young lawyer Roy Barnes did in his courtroom. So, uh, upset Dan Duke, that Dan Duke had him arrested on the spot. And taken off and placed in a jail cell, uh, and uh, that's still a story that gets uh, that that uh, Roy Barnes en enjoys telling. <laughs> so, one of the things that when I when I talk to uh, writer friends of mine, and I'm uh, fortunate to have 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 a number of uh, writer friends, uh, but you know, in, in nonfiction, uh, one of the things that you seems like they really strive for a sort of specificity and detail, uh, even going back decades like you did here. And it's one of the things I think lawyers have in common, because when you're given an opening statement or a closing argument, if you can lock in that sort of specificity to tell, you know, small details. And uh, I was really struck, you know, like even from the from the very first chapter, when you describe, you know, the murder, you talk about uh, uh they're there on Lover's Lane. The flashlight comes in the window. She's walking barefoot through the uh, through the pouring rain uh, with with uh, uh, the flashlight barely lighting the way. As a writer, how do you how do you gather and 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 choose and use that kind of detail? 
for that particular scene, which, you know, is, is the bulk of the first chapter, which is the abduction and the murder. Um, I had, um, I had Nan's testimony from three trials. It was part of it. Uh, I also had multiple accounts that were, that were carried in, uh, in the newspapers, both in the two, um, the two newspapers in Carrollton and the Atlanta constitution. Uh, and what I did was I sort of like sifted through those accounts to come up with what was the most sort of stable account of what happened that night. I also did things like I looked at what the weather was on that day. You know, what was, the, you know, I looked at maps to see where they were, uh, where based on the testimony they had to have gone, um, how far away that it put them from the nearest houses at the time. Uh, because I had a plat of the, because uh, this was this was at a at the development of a country club, Sunset Hills Country Club, that was still under construction, uh, and uh, so with the when they get marched out from the end of a dead end road, well that road's not a dead end anymore. So I had to go find out well where was that at that time um, when they were marched across the field. Well there aren't any fields anymore. So where were they going? What direction? It turns out they're being marched across what is now the Sunset Hills Country Club golf course. Uh, and um, so, you know, I just gathered all that information uh, and, uh, and and tried to piece it together as a narrative uh, to, to get people into the, into the story. It, it was gripping. I mean, you know, gripping, it kind of grab, grabs hold of you there. Uh, it's terrifying. It's, it's, yeah, Damn. it really yeah. is. Really is. Um, one other thing I want to talk about that that you do cover because it, it it it's an incredible incredible bit of history in Georgia is the three governors controversy and how it plays a role with um, Arnell Ellis in in this case. Um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, because that is such a big part of political history in Georgia. Most people who who love Georgia history know about it. But another it's 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 sort of like the Dan Duke thing. Another thing like it's unbelievable. I just it's hard to imagine you you ha literally have people trying to beat down the door of the governor's chambers in the Capitol. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I know the the story of the three governors controversy and um, and have for, you know, uh, I guess maybe, maybe we, maybe we learned about it in high school, certainly in college learned about it. Uh, but even every time I look at it, it still is like, you, you sort of rub your eyes. You're like, is, could that actually have really happened? <laughs> because it's hard to imagine. Although I guess maybe now in, in this climate that we're in now, now it's maybe easier to imagine. Yeah. I think after January 6th, we right. can understand it, but before January 6th and before the last four years, I, I would never have imagined it, but, but it really happened. Yeah, really uh, a, a mob of people trying to depose one governor and install another one on the spot uh, is, you know, and there being this real live controversy that again has to be settled by the courts, by the Georgia Supreme court. Uh, as to who was going to be governor of Georgia. Uh, and um, I, I, I do think that it's important for the story. Uh, one, it was important because it places uh, Dan Duke, who was an attorney for, uh, for, the, for Governor Ellis Arnold, sort of in his historical period. Uh, 
but um, it, uh, I think it's, it, it was important for this story because it, it shows sort of the broken ground that uh, Georgia politics was at that period. Uh, you know, you had the competing example of a really progressive Southern governor like Ellis Arnold, maybe the most progressive we had ever had and maybe ever have had uh, against uh, a uh, against the Talmadge machine, which ran, you know, specifically on the idea of preserving the white primary, which was the only election that mattered in Georgia, the, the, the Democratic primary and, and excluding blacks from from the ballot box. Uh, I mean, that kind of um, political upheaval was disturbing and to no small extent embarrassing to a lot of people in Georgia. And someone like uh, Judge Boykin, uh, that kind of disorder, and he was an Ellis Arnold appointee to the bench, um, that kind of disorder was something that was foremost in his mind. That, that was not the direction he wanted to see his community go in. Um, and, uh, so I think, it, I think it really played, um, a, a role in how, uh, the judge and the prosecutor, uh, viewed the need for establishing order and sort of rationality to, to, to government and Carrollton, if they, if they were going to get where they wanted to go. Right. I also think it, it, though it sets the tone of the period. So, so you say, how could a man um, be tried for murder in one day and sentenced within the span of eight hours, sentenced to the electric chair? When you have people like the mob like that trying to, to control the state, it's it's understandable. Right, right. And it wasn't the it someone like Judge Boykin was less concerned about Clarence Henderson's outcome than he was about the mob. Uh, if the mob had gotten a hold of Clarence Henderson and had lynched him for, you know, allegedly being involved in the murder of Buddy Stevens, that kind of outcome was unacceptable to people like Judge Boykin. Running him through the justice system in one day at an all-white jury under armed guard where your older brother is the special prosecutor was less, you know, offensive to him because that was an orderly progression. And I think that was what he was more concerned with. I think it's, uh, you know, it's been said that if von Clausewitz was right, that war was diplomacy by other means. Uh, uh, courtrooms and uh, the law is politics by other means. And uh, I, I think it certainly um, certainly reflects that reflects that here. Oh, I think so. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it the there was a lot of politics that plays out in the courtroom in this book. So uh, who uh, who killed Buddy? <laughs> Uh, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it, it, that would be a, that would be uh, the the tougher book to write, really. You know, seventy years after the fact, uh, can I can I figure out was uh, was that did that nine millimeter round come out of that thirty eight caliber uh, pistol? And if so, who was holding it at the time? Um, what I can say is uh, 
you know, there were certainly better suspects than Clarence Henderson. Uh, and one of those was the man who owned that pistol. Uh, he was a former uh, police officer who had uh, become a taxi driver uh, and uh, he had uh, loaned the pistol loaned the pistol out to um, a friend of his who several hours later was then uh, accosted by a masked man and had his date uh, assault sexually assaulted uh, and then the pistol went missing. Um, Really, the only person who had the sort of ability to get from place to place, um, w- you know, would be somebody like a white taxi driver. You know, and, who, who could, and who knew where the couples were. Knew where the couples were, uh, particularly this, you know, this, you know, he, he transported his friend. Uh, this was a this was a, a sexual assault that occurred about uh, three months prior to. Uh, Buddy Stevens' murder, but he uh, escorted his. He drove his friend to meet his friend's date, gave his friend the pistol, and then shortly after, you know, he left. Uh, his friend was attacked and had the pistol stolen. Um, Leonard, you know, Leonard Pendergrass was he guilty or not? I don't know, but it it would certainly be where I would start looking if I were the police, and. Um, he was, you know, in that in that time period, considered to be a likely suspect by just the community. You know, it's interesting. The uh, I, I always say, uh, having been born in Cedartown, I never make fun of people from Alabama because I only missed it by about six miles. <laughs> and I think Carrollton is an equid, equidistance from the Alabama state line, and uh, the. That, you know, Eastham Hill, which was in Polk County, was right over the line, was reputedly the moonshine capital of the world during uh, World War II. And so that whole Alabama border going down from Cedartown down to Phoenix City, Alabama, was just sort of a bootlegger's paradise because you could run across state lines and, you, you know, they get after you go over on the other side of the line and whatever else. And so it sounds like there, there were a ton of bootleggers and gamblers they were just sort of the usual suspects in uh, Carrollton and uh, uh, with the with the uh, African-American bootleggers and suspects at the top of the list. It seemed like for a while that just everybody they stopped, you know, where, where, where were you the night this murder you know, happened? Uh, because we, 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 we think you were capable of it uh, sort of thing. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think that uh, the uh, white police at the time when it came to finding a, uh, a black suspect, they would just grab the black community and shake, uh, and, and wait for something to rattle out. Uh, so that's why I think, you know, there was a, essentially, there was a dragnet that went well beyond Carrollton and Carroll County where black men, any black man was a suspect in Buddy Stevens murder and people were, uh, held, uh, without charges in secret prisons, uh, and that's, you know, that sounds kind of wild, uh, like something out of a spy novel or something, but that's in fact, what was going on is that they were being taken out of the County held where their family didn't know where they were, uh, without charges and essentially just sweated, uh, most likely physically abused. Cause that was very common during the time 
until they came up with a suspect. And, and eventually Clarence Henderson would be that suspect, uh, probably because at some point somebody is going to give up somebody in their own community that they're like, I don't like Clarence Henderson anyway. Uh, and uh, because he was a, he was a rough, rough guy. Uh, he was a, he was a brawler and a moonshiner and a, and a gambler and um, known to be sort of trouble. Uh, and so eventually the community spit him out to relieve the tension on them. And that's, you know, that's no way to get justice, but that is a way that that machine worked. Chris, in the book, you, you, um, you talk a lot about the coverage, the press, how they, how they covered these three trials, how they, as you said, it was kind of breathless coverage on the first trial, but by the third trial, it barely got a paragraph in the paper. Um, and then of course I've read a, a couple of, uh, pieces of the editorials that Stanley Parkman wrote, but I'm wondering with, with the trials we've seen this past year, um, with the trials of the McMichaels down in Glen County for the death of Ahmad Arbery and uh, with the trial of Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd up in Minneapolis. I'm wondering if you can give us your take on how the media coverage in these murder trials is um, compared to back then. And do you think it's fair? Do you think it's slanted? Are journalists doing their, their job, their duty as you see it as a journalist? Well, I do. I think so. I mean, but, you know, we have so many different kinds of outlets that get involved in this kind of coverage. Uh, you know, we have television news, we have print, we have uh, a lot of online only news publications. And a lot of these uh, a lot of these have come at it with a perspective. Um, and, I, and I'm not, you know, coming from a traditional media outlet, I'm not real comfortable with that kind of reporting. Um but I think if you take a look at the mainstream press, um, I think the coverage of those trials was good um, because, one, you have a lot of expertise in covering criminal justice in the in mainstream press. You had a lot of people like mine in, in, our, in the case of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we sent Bill Rankin there and uh, Bill Rankin are, is as good in the nation as you're going to find in covering uh, courtroom trials. Um, there's not much that he's going to miss. He understands the broader uh, context and consequences of the trials, and, you know, things that are happening outside the courtroom that are important. And so I think, you know, in the Aubrey trial, for instance, I think, you know, what, what Bill did uh, and what a lot of the outlets did in covering that, uh, I think it was fine coverage. Uh, now, what's that going to look like in 70 years? You know, I don't know. Uh, I know when I was looking at this, uh, the Henderson trials, um, I was really interested in what uh, the, uh, the local press had to say, because they were going to have a real sense of the pulse of the community. Uh, more than just what was said in the courtroom, I was going to know sort of how the community felt about it by looking at the local press. Um, but when I and when I looked at the black press, I was going to have a sense of sort of what the national stakes were from a civil rights standpoint. You know, did this did the trial of this one sharecropper in Carrollton matter to people in 
Chicago or Pittsburgh? And if so, why? And, and you get that from that perspective from, from the black press. Uh, you also got it from the New York times, you know, you could, you could get a sense if it, if the New York times started mirroring the Pittsburgh courier, which was, you know, an African-American owned newspaper, then you knew you, you know, something, you know, something larger is happening in the culture. Do you think the local press with regard to the Clarence Henderson coverage, the local press wrote to persuade or were they really just writing to get reflect the the community's views? I think they that certainly if you take a look at Stanley Parkman's Georgian, um, he had an agenda for Carrollton. Uh, we know that because he wrote it in the newspaper in every edition. It was the the Georgian agenda, which was uh, for a progressive, uh, you know, a progressive Southern community. Um, in the coverage of that, those trials, I think what came out was a reflection of sort of the fear that this kind of uh, crime and this kind of trial and all the elements that were injected into the community, the I, th I think you could see sort of the fear and paranoia that it was creating in the community uh, when the communists and and black attorneys uh, start coming into Carrollton, Georgia. Um, I mean, this is entirely new and really sort of the fears of what this is going to pretend for a community that's trying to pull itself up uh, sort of come through in that coverage. And while I'm talking about it, I, I, I really want to talk about uh, a little bit when we talk about sort of like heroes. Mm -hmm. um, imagine being, you know, uh, Clarence Henderson uh, for after his first trial and through his second trial had two black attorneys, S.S. Uh, Robinson and E. Moore, both of them uh, attorneys on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. And they did tremendous work. Uh, throughout the 50s and 60s uh, on uh, civil rights issues. Uh, but imagine if you are them walking in uh, to uh, the courthouse in Carroll County to defend this black man who has been accused of killing a white boy while in the process of sexually assaulting a white woman. Um that those guys were heroes. Yeah, it took courage for them even just to walk into the courthouse, probably. Right, right. And the black bar in Atlanta, you know, was filled with these heroes during this period. Uh, you know, uh, practicing law in conditions that are sort of unfathomable now, you know, and, and in, in one case, uh, you know, being threatened by the prosecutor uh, for just trying to prepare a defense, you know. Don't talk to my witnesses. You know, I will have you will you will get killed. That was some rough reading. I remember that passage and some very rough language and rough reading to, to think what they were subjected to. Right. Right. And so Robinson and Moore, although. Sadly, when you when you're dealing with. Um, uh, largely white media, they don't show up as much as you'd like them to. You don't hear their voices. And, and when they prepared for the second trial, one of the things they did is they went and hired Dan Duke to come in as their co-counsel. And Dan Duke essentially was the only voice you hear in the second trial because, 
I think smartly, they looked at the situation and said, we need a white lawyer to talk to this white jury. Uh, and, uh, and Dan Duke, you know, to his credit was willing to do that. Um, and, but, uh, but it was more in Robinson and their brain power behind that, particularly in that second trial that, uh, that provided a really, I think a very effective defense for Henderson, even if it didn't, didn't, didn't matter to the jury that much. Right. Well, and it's and it's rare in my experience that retrials go better for the defendant. Usually they go worse uh, uh, for the defendant. Uh, but uh, I, I, I frequently think about what you're talking about. I, I love, you know, Thurgood Marshall was always sort of a hero of mine. And, you know, he'd leave Harlem to come south and his dad had been a train porter and he would sit, sit and sip bourbon in the and the, the porters would bring him bourbon while he looked at the file. Uh, but he got to go back to Harlem where there was a rich uh, black culture, uh, you know, it, booming really even at that time. And, and these guys you're talking about down on Auburn Avenue, they're, they're still here in Georgia, you know, living, living where they've uh, uh, argued this case. Uh, and just, uh, and just <clears throat> scraping by, I mean, going to, going to churches and asking that preachers, you know, go to their uh, congregations and pass ask for, the hat. Yeah, pass the hat for the, for the defense, mm-hmm. um, and and still really unable to get the sort of the things that they really wanted for a vigorous defense. Um, one of the things I really wanted to get across in in the sections where I did do talk about Thurgood Marshall and the national NAACP is what a shoestring operation they were running, and how hard it was for them to work simultaneously on big uh, civil cases attacking sort of the bedrock of segregation while also trying to put out these uh, these fires of these individual uh, largely black men who are accused in uh, Jim Crow courtrooms all around the South. There were a lot of people inside the NAACP who would, were advising that they not uh, uh, you know, provide defense of these, uh, these black criminal defendants, but uh, Thurgood Marshall felt like he couldn't turn his back on them. Uh, and Clarence Henderson was one of those. Um, uh, and he was able to lend what aid he could, but you know, they were really, they were, you know, I went to the NAACP archives, uh, in uh, the library of Congress in Washington, DC and started going through their files there. And, uh, I think any lawyer would appreciate, uh, 90% of the documents had to do with billing. Uh, it was, it was, it was really though an attempt to extract whatever money that they could get, raise whatever money they could, so they could move on to the next case. You know, do you know, do just the simple things to get you know some of these cases moving forward. And and they had to have been stretched very thinly. Very, very, very much. Way too much work for what they had. Which is why you know somebody like Dan Duke was such a powerful ally to have. Uh, because he was in a much more privileged position um, uh, and, you know, could have more effectively argue for, uh, you know, adequate funding for the, for the defense and things like that. He had a, he had a louder voice in that, in that sense. So, I mean, the, the partnership between uh, Duke and the NAACP was, was really beneficial for some defendants like Clarence Henderson. So is there going to be an audio book? There is an audiobook, yes. And in fact, right. it should be available simultaneous with, uh, last I heard, simultaneous with the print edition. Had an opportunity to, uh, uh, 
you know, choose from three narrators. It was really wild. Uh, that's uh, I've learned so much about the publishing industry. Uh, and, and that was one of the interesting things is they're like, here are three people pick who's going to read your book. And it was, they were reading a selection. You've got a great voice. I think you can do it yourself. I Uh, agree. Uh, I wasn't offered, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, I, you know, I was willing to do it if uh, need be, but, but frankly, when they sent me, um, the samples, all three of the guys that I, that I heard reading my words, uh, sounded better than I, than I sounded to myself. So I, it was, it was going to be really hard for me to say, no, I can do it better than this professional voice actor. Um, but, uh, I, I, I was, I was a little worried that, you know, this being a first book that there wouldn't be an audio book right away, but it looks like we are going to have that. So, right. That's great. Um, and the book is officially out January 11th, January 11th. And, uh, I take all out. That's where you get books. What it'll be available. Exactly. Brought to Audible, you by Amazon. Uh, Amazon. All those. And- yep. Uh, Abrams books is, uh, 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 has been great to work with. Uh, and, um, I'm really, uh, I'm looking forward to that day when it's available everywhere. Awesome. We we're looking forward to it too. I highly recommend, I really enjoyed reading it, Chris. It was just fascinating to me. I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the underbelly of, of racism in Georgia back then, things I didn't like, but also learned a lot about some really, really neat heroes in Georgia. So, um, my hat's off to you. I thought you did a great job and I, I'm recommending it to all my book clubs. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, let me know if the book clubs need, uh, uh the author to zoom in on that would or be something. Great. I'd be happy that- to do it. I can't tell you, you know, anytime, uh, and this is sort of like anytime I hear somebody, who's read the book, I said, it's sort of like seeing an animal you've only ever seen in the zoo out in the wild. You're like, <laughs> wow, somebody is, somebody's read the book, you know, in their living room. So yes. you just staring at it in the screen. It's just amazing for me. Uh, and it was also uh, terrifying to have uh, people with great legal minds reading, you know, a book that had so much <laughs> going on in courtrooms. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm just so happy that you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's outstanding, and I think the other thing too, uh, as you sort of alluded to earlier, and when you and Robin were talking about heroes, um, so many people who, yeah, uh, you know, no, nobody that you would characterize as a hero, and probably nobody that you would characterize as a villain, really thought that's what they were becoming at that time, you know, in place, and uh, I'm reminded of that. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Baptist hymn wants to every man and nation, you know, new occasions teach new duties. And so uh, I think it's important to uh, read stuff like this because it teaches us that we're in a part where, you know, history is going to judge us one day. Oh yeah. And, 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 and we can't see how that's going to happen. Um, you know, the great uh, historian of the South, C. Van Woodward, um, I always think about what he, how he described the South as a man on a cliff from your perspective, you could see where he needed to go. But from his perspective, all he could see was the next place to put his hand. And, and that is the case with so many of these people uh, in, in this book. Uh, I really wanted to portray them as the people they were, you know, misguided sometimes, sometimes making, you know, brave choices, sometimes, you know, uh, not the hero that you'd want them to be. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's who they were, you know. You could have somebody, and and we didn't talk about him, but uh, the editor of the Constitution at the time, Ralph McGill, who is, 
you know, canonized in my building at the AJC, right. uh, you know, it was also a virulent uh, anti-communist and red baiter, uh, you know, and and so the role that he plays in this book is not his most flattering uh, right. because he is uh, he's really sort of counterbalancing his progressive views on race with a really angry approach towards, uh, you know, anti-communism. Yeah, I put a question mark by his name, say surprising. I, I'd only heard of him in the in the good light. Right. Uh, right. And and this book portrayed him a, a part of him that I'd never even heard of. And so that was really interesting to see. And that's why I say they're products of their times. They're ambiguous. They're complicated. They're not all one thing. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, exactly. Uh, and and, you know, they're they have their motivations of the moment. And uh uh, you know, how it's viewed 70 years later is not something they're thinking about, uh, you know, um, uh, for somebody like McGill, he was really concerned that, you know, the communists were a menace, a red menace. Uh, and but it was also a way to give him cover to continue to be progressive on issues of race by also being staunchly anti-communist. Not unlike the NAACP. Not unlike the NAACP. Not super, unlike a lot of us. Super <laughs> complex. Yeah. yeah. Well, Chris, it's been wonderful talking with you about your book. Um, and uh, for everyone listening to remind you, it's the three death sentences of Clarence Henderson coming out on January 11. It'll be available and we're excited about it. Chris, we ask every guest of ours to end our session uh, with their definition or notion of justice. And so I put that question to you. What is your definition or notion of justice how do you see justice oh yeah i've been waiting on that uh, <laughs> just, um yeah and i have given some thought to it and and particularly how it relates to this story um i i think one definition of justice could be the actions that uh do the greatest good while causing the least amount of harm uh because in every instance uh you know uh, every action is going to have ripples. And, and I think you see a lot of people in this story who are trying to address an injustice in the death of Buddy Stevens, but in fact are creating further injustices. I mean, it was what happened to Clarence Henderson should never happen to an American. He should never have been put in the position he was in. It was an injustice, and it did not correct the injustice of Buddy Stevens' death. Um, I think those actions that we take that correct that balance is where we find real justice. All right. It's great. Yeah. Great book. Great guest, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Just to remind everyone, it's we've been talking with Chris Joyner, uh, he's works with the AJC. He's an investigative journalist there. You can follow his articles on AJC.com. Learn you can learn more about Chris on his LinkedIn page, and you can follow Chris on Twitter at C Joiner. C J O Y N E R. Chris Joiner, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Robin, uh, as you know, we always try to share some uh, piece of news coverage or a story from somewhere 
that uh, we see that uh, involves trials or involves the law. And so mine today comes from uh, Vanity Fair uh, magazine. It's a December 8, 2021 article by someone named Gabriel Sherman, uh, a writer for Vanity Fair, and it's about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And uh, I noted the December the 8th, uh, 2021 date because we're now well past that and actually have a verdict, uh, which was a guilty verdict. Uh, there was, there was uh, I think, one count that there was not guilty verdict on, but a predominantly guilty verdict. And in this article, uh, uh, Mr. Sherman writes, and I'm, it's entitled, The Prosecution is Fumbling Its Case Against Ghislaine Maxwell. And in it, he writes uh, that it's shocking and tragic that the prosecution's case against Maxwell appears far weaker than many people expected. The list of prosecutorial missteps is long. Victims have appeared unprepared for cross-examination. High-profile co-conspirators have not yet been called to testify about Maxwell's alleged role in the Epstein child sex trafficking operation. On Tuesday, prosecutors stunned reporters in the courthouse viewing the uh, courthouse viewing room by announcing that the government intends to rest its case before Friday, weeks earlier than anticipated. It all raises the painful question, will Maxwell go free? Uh, he goes on to say that he was dismayed, for instance, that the prosecutor, uh, Laura Pomerantz, opening statement ran 35 minutes, roughly 10 minutes less than the government's opening argument in the Elizabeth Holmes fraud trial by comparison. And he was underwhelmed that prosecutors did not first call the alleged victim as their first witness and instead led off with Epstein's pilot, uh, Larry Viskoski. The perception in the viewing room was that Viskoski testified more like a defense witness, claiming he never saw uh, sex acts with underage girls or sexual activity on Epstein's planes. Well, we now know that, that the jury has spoken, that uh, these perceptions by the media, the uh, being aghast in the viewing room was not the same uh, reaction that jurors had. Jurors took a long time to come up uh, with the verdict. There was some thought that uh, they might have a hung jury for a while, but indeed the prosecution won this case. And so uh, one of the reasons that I picked this article today is because it goes to show that truthfully in a jury trial, the people who matter in the jury trial in a jury trial are those that actually sit on the jury and listen to the evidence and not what's reported in the media. And it's often, I think, uh, in vogue among uh, not just writers for Vanity Fair magazine, but among lawyers like ourselves to, to you know, second guess and, oh, they would have had a longer this and they would have done longer. Uh, it also goes to show, as I had uh, a professor in college used to say, V does not equal V. Volume is not always a virtue. And so it's not always a virtue to have a long, complicated case. Uh, sometimes a quick case that meets all the elements is all that you need. And uh, we're frequently Monday morning quarterbacking people when they lose trials. And I thought it was important to uh, maybe bring this uh, 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 Saturday night uh, quarterbacking before the game was actually played uh, to the attention of our, our viewers, our listeners. Yeah, good point. I, I heard a lot of prognosticators on TV um, <laughs> saying what they thought the verdict was going to be and all that sort of thing. And I don't know about you, Lester, but I, I, I you know, we both tried a lot of cases. 
I don't know about you, but when a jury comes back in, I still they're looking right at us. I still don't know how they're going to come out right. until they read the verdict form. Right. So if if you know, and I'm the one who tried the case. So if somebody says I can predict what a jury's going to do, I think is a bunch of you know what. Um, they're they're in charge. The jury's in charge, and they'll let you know. And they're they're the people who matter, not the product prognosticators. It, it reminded me a little bit about uh, 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 my son and I were talking the other day about all the the punditry around college football, you know, right now. <laughs> and, you know, there's fewer and fewer games left. You know, we're now we're down to one game. And, it, you know, as the actual games go down, the amount of punditry about all of those and what people are saying goes up. And I said, you know, when all is said and done, there's a lot more said than there is actually done. <laughs> and I, I think that's certainly true of, of these trials. And we've had three pretty high fo- high profile uh, trials, you know, that have gone on here uh, 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 recently. We had the the uh, the Holmes case, which the article alluded to. Uh, we had the uh, the Potter case, uh, which was uh, in Minnesota, which was the police officer uh, who said she mistaked the the, uh, uh, her, ta- her pistol for a taser. And then you had the Maxwell trial. So we got a lot of trial watching, you know, going on. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it is, it is interesting to look and, and, and follow closely what's going on, but it's horrible to predict. Yeah. Horrible to predict. And, uh, so I, I try not to, I just pray for the right result. And by the way, I know I've lost trials also, but I usually think the jury gets it right. I, I, I think that's true. It's, uh, uh, I, I am fond of channeling Winston Churchill and saying that the jury system is really the worst system at the wor- in the world, except for all others, sort of like democracy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, when you look at uh, places where we don't have jury trials, and of course, that's one of our missions, uh, you know, at the Civil Justice Foundation, who uh, sponsors us, uh, is to make sure that people understand how important it is, because in places like, you know, uh, England, unless you've been slandered, uh, you don't get a civil jury trial. Yeah. Big, big difference. My my talk today is a, a, a just a really short story about um, former uh, Justice, Supreme, United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and there's been a, a newspaper article that all of her books are going to be auctioned off. Uh, her entire, she has an entire first edition collection of books um, by f- some fiction writers like Toni Morrison, uh, Gloria Steinem. Um, she's even got a first edition book by the late Justice Anton- Antonin Scalia, who is one of her best friends. Um, they're going online on a going for auction online starting January 19. She has more than a thousand books. And some of that even includes law reviews that she wrote and signed by, quote, Ruth, just signed Ruth. Um, So that's very interesting to me. They're going up for auction and the estimate, the low end estimate for the entire collection over a thousand books is $60,000. I'm going to keep my eye on that because I think it's going to be much, much more. I think people want to have a book that sat on the bookshelf of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg just to have that that connection. She became one of the most famous Supreme Court justices I can recall. I, I mean, people got RBG tattoos uh, and wear dissenting 
earrings and that sort of thing. So I think it's going to be much higher and I'm going to keep an eye on that. But I just thought that was interesting that even in death, um, people want to still be connected to Justice Ginsburg. It's and and if the if the if the pundits are right there and uh, it is uh, sixty thousand dollars on the whole collection, you might pick up a nice bargain uh, yeah. uh, by by bidding on it. Absolutely. I wonder. I wonder too, as I sit here and our of course our readers can't see where I'm I'm at my house, but I've got law books back behind me. And I think that's probably going the way of, uh, of medieval armor. You know, we're not, we're, nobody's using books anymore. It's all over uh, computers. Right. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see uh, actual books that belong to uh, a great lawyer and a great justice. Yeah. Well, Lester, that was a great, a great discussion with Chris Joyner. Um, you got anything else? I don't think so. I think that was a great way to start off 2022. And I agree. I, I do hope our our uh, listeners will will go uh, get that book when it comes out uh, in the next couple of days. Me too. I, I want to um, end, end by saying we want to thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice System. And we also want to thank our, our producer. We don't say his name enough, uh, but we've got a great producer, Taras Raz Misher. We, we thank him. Um, and so for our listeners, just to let you know, you can find out more about Lester Tate at his website, his law firm website, akintate.com. And you find out more about me, Robin Fraser Clark at gatriallawyers.net. And you can you can always reach our podcast and uh, the some documents related to our guest at cuncourt.squarespace.com. So we hope you will subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. So until next time, we'll see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.